Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. My name is Mackenzie Queenan. I'm an AUSA in the Security, Cyber, and Financial Fraud Unit here in Boston. Um, the white collar crime section of the BBA thought it would be a great idea to have a panel dedicated to COVID fraud updates. Some of you might have remembered that earlier in the pandemic, we put together a panel that touched upon a number of key government programs that developed in response to the pandemic and sort of touched on the parameters surrounding those programs and what was expected in terms of enforcement. And now a few years into the pandemic and now that a lot of those cases have further developed, we thought it would be helpful to take a look at how those enforcement priorities and actions at both the state and federal level have sort of panned out um, and what that looks like for the government at this point. So in order to do that today, we have a great lineup from the AG's office, the SEC, and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. As sort of a catch-all reminder, the panelists are speaking about their own views and opinions, and so what they say today is not, not representative of the opinions and views of the government agencies that they represent. And so we're going to reserve some time, like Caitlin said, at the end for questions. Um, but if you have something really pressing or you think it, it fits in exactly with what we're discussing, just throw it in the chat and I will monitor that as we go along. Um, so to start, I think it would be helpful to have each of our panelists just give a couple sentences on their background and introduce themselves to the rest of the folks that are attending. Um, we'll start with Rua. Hi, everyone. My name is Rua Kelly, and I work at the SEC, where I've been a trial counsel since uh, 2010. Um, before that, I worked uh, for a time as a state prosecutor at the Middlesex DA's office, and um, also for a time at the Southern District of New York as an AUSA. Um, and then before that, I was in private practice for a few years. Um, so, uh, and I worked on a case that I'll talk about a little bit uh, in 2021 involving COVID fraud uh, at the SEC. So, Welcome to everyone. Thanks so much, Rua. Next up, we'll have Amy Crafts. Hi, everyone. My name is Amy Crafts. I'm chief of the False Claims Division at the AG's office. Uh, I've been in the AG's office since 2014, and before that was in private practice at Proskauer here in Boston. Thanks so much, Amy. And last but not least, David Holcomb. Hi, everybody. I'm David Holcomb. I'm also an AUSA in the financial fraud unit here at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. Um, I've been here for a few years, and before that, I was in private practice also in Boston. Great. Thank you, everyone. So I thought it might make sense to start by asking each of our panelists to sort of describe at a high level how their component of the government is involved in prosecuting pandemic-related crimes, um, because that differs from agency to agency. So Let's start with Amy from the AG's office. Thanks, Mackenzie. So our efforts at the AG's office uh, involve many different divisions within the office, um, from civil rights to uh, consumer protection to unemployment and insurance fraud, false claims, healthcare, Medicaid fraud. I'm sure I'm leaving some out. And I first want to note that the work, the pandemic-related work that we've done is much broader than COVID fraud. So I'm going to be leaving out a lot of um, a lot of the AG's efforts over the past few years. Um, in terms of COVID fraud, our work has evolved over time. Um, and I just want to apologize for my voice. I have a slight cold. Um, so 
Uh, early in the pandemic, we were really focused on price gouging. Um, we amended the regulations interpreting 93A um, to include price gouging, price gouging with regard to goods and services necessary for health, safety, and welfare in a medical emergency. So specifically including PPE for medical professionals. Um, we received hundreds of price gouging complaints. We primarily uh, resolved them informally, um, but that work was done primarily in 2020 and a little bit into 2021 during the pendency of the emergency. Um, we also have issued advisories to the public about COVID fraud, so particularly uh, related to vaccines, including email and phone scams that I spoke about a couple of years ago when we had this initial panel, um, but really um, have been focused on a number of enforcement areas that have sort of persisted during the course of the pandemic, um, including PPE, unemployment claims, uh, fake products, housing assistance, nursing homes, and many of those investigations continue today. Some of them have been resolved, but many, many are ongoing. Um, so, um, so, you know, I do think that, that we've sort of reached the peak or maybe passed the peak at the AG's office, um, the, from a constituent complaint perspective, uh, we were, we sort of peaked in March and April of 2020 at 1000 complaints a month. Um, we're down, we're still above pre-pandemic levels, but the, uh, the percentage of constituent complaints having to do with COVID it's down to like 5% of the complaints that we're receiving. So um, so that's sort of a snapshot and happy to talk about it more specifically later on. Thank you so much. Um, turning next to the SEC, Rua. Yes, yeah, so we've, I, I think, um, probably also peaked to some extent, but I think we've generally brought three types of cases. And just to be clear, all of our cases are civil, although we've worked in tandem with the criminal authorities on certain matters. Um, the first type of case is kind of what we always see, which is fraud in the microcap space. And for those of you who aren't frequent flyers with the SEC's cases, um, those are basically like very tiny public companies that are often um, the sort of uh, a tool to exploit people um, when they engage in fraud, usually in the form of what's called a pump and dump, where they try to increase the price of the security by issuing press releases that are false or misleading. And so COVID was kind of the flavor of the month for microcap fraud. Uh, once the pandemic started, people were much more vulnerable uh, to, um, you know, believing these kinds of scams. Um, so we brought cases like one filed in the Boston office against uh, defendant named Gomes and a number of other people who were alleged to be part of a microcap fraud ring that tried to, um, you know, entice people to buy a stock, increase its price. And then all these people who knew that the press releases were fake would just you know, dump their securities and uh, make a profit. Um, so we saw a number of those cases and also brought trading suspensions against companies that um, were making what we thought were misleading statements to the public. Um, the second type of case that we filed were, um, were I think, the, the toughest area, which were companies that were kind of real companies, but were you know, to put it mildly out in front of their skis when making representations to the public about uh, their ability, for example, to get PPE or to get masks or to uh, be able to get testing in place, um, you know, given the chaos and 
kind of the environment that we were all in in the spring of 2020, you know, how do you how do you determine as the SEC what we have to, which is that someone intended to mislead the investing public um, when we bring a fraud case? And that was tough to figure out in that time because, you know, who's to say what was reasonable to expect? Um, but in the case of Parallax Health Sciences, we did bring a case against um, executives who we thought made false representations about their ability to get this kind of equipment and, and did so intentionally to try to jack up the price of the stock and make a profit. Um, and then the third kind of case we brought involved disclosures to the public. Uh, most prominently, we brought a case against the Cheesecake Factory for basically telling the public in their disclosures that they were not being as severely impacted by the pandemic as they were when they were actually struggling to pay rent and um, getting um, you know, behind uh, with some landlords. So um, you know, we brought a case involving disclosure fraud. So not, you know, not it, you know, the same kind of intentional fraud, but making statements that misled the investing public um, in their public filings. So th that's broadly the types of cases that we brought and um, the trading suspensions peaked a long time ago. Um, but, you know, certainly there are ongoing investigations. Um, and, uh, you know, we we kicked the tires on a lot of a lot of different claims that uh, public companies have made and um, that even have made, been made in the context of private offerings. So that's a decent nutshell summary, I think. Thanks, Rua. And uh, David from the U.S. Attorney's Office. So um, to start with the somewhat obvious, uh, the criminal prosecution of pandemic fraud remains an enormous priority and also an, an enormous undertaking. Um, the president announced fairly early on that it was a priority. The attorney general formed a task force. Um, and I think the, the scale of um, pandemic related fraud in, in terms of fraudulently obtaining all the funds that were available and misusing those funds um, it's been widely reported now. Many of the examples that we've all heard in the national uh, media are, are quite vivid um, and typically uh, involve the Paycheck Protection Program or emergency injury uh, um, disaster loans, EIDLs, idols, uh, that went to businesses or nonprofits, but also pandemic unassistance or uh, unemployment assistance, PUA, um, claims made by individuals or on behalf of individuals. So, uh, our, our focus has has been um, on the funds that were fraudulently obtained. Uh, and, and I'm happy to talk about each type of uh, case a little later, but I think in terms of the question of how the federal government um, and the different parts of it are focused on this, uh, as part of the task force, the Department of Justice um, has a representative in each of the offices who's devoted to to um, kind of coordinating enforcement efforts and reporting information on our enforcement efforts. Uh, in our office, it's Amanda Strachan, the um, co-chief of our criminal division. The department also made additional funding available for, um, for prosecutors who would focus on uh, this type of fraud. Um, and it's really a whole of government approach. And so what that means is you're seeing not only the major investigative agencies we typically work with focusing on this um, area, but also a lot of uh, investigators and agencies that you wouldn't typically expect, um, including, uh, well, obviously the Department of Labor, but also Health and Human Services and the Department of Veterans Affairs. And that's for a couple of reasons. In addition to the Paycheck Protection Program um, and some of the more common, uh, commonly known programs, there were certainly any number of 
um, more niche programs uh, of funding available. Um, and then there's also been formed a pandemic response accountability committee, which uh, seeks to take advantage of the fact that all the federal agencies have an office of inspector general. They all have um, federal agents at, at their disposal and they too can be um, uh, directed um, to help out with this effort, at least, um, you know, for devote part of their time to, to, to help uh, prosecute and investigate COVID fraud. Thanks, everyone. I think that gave a great sort of sense of the breadth of the government regulation in this area and also how each agency sort of has its own niche in terms of what they're looking at. Um, and so we sort of touched on a little bit of this already, but I was hoping each of you could provide a couple case-specific examples of the types of cases your office is working on. Obviously, everyone understands um, there are parameters surrounding commenting on ongoing investigations. Um, but if you could just give a little more flavor to the types of cases. I know, for example, Brua gave some great examples with the Cheesecake Factory um, action, um, but we'll start with Amy. Thanks, Mackenzie. Um, so picking up on what Mackenzie just said, there are a number of matters that I wanna mention, but I can't discuss in detail. Um, for example, um, we are currently litigating against the Boston Sports Club um, for their continuing to charge members uh, during the, the time when clubs were closed requiring in-person cancellation. Um, we also have, and, and that's a civil matter, we also have two pending civil matters involving PPE fraud um, and another civil matter, including uh, fake product claims. Um, we're also in the midst of investigating, so no matters pending yet, but investigating housing assistance fraud. And this is something that has uh, come up more recently. Um, it, it is not something that we've been working on for the duration of the pandemic, but um, from our perspective, it's, um, it's landlords applying for assistance for non-existent tenants or for family members under the ERAP program, which is the Emergency Rental Assistance Program. Um, I did wanna focus my examples in the unemployment space because the AG's office is pursuing uh, those claims both criminally and civilly. Uh, and so from a criminal perspective, we're continuing to focus on unemployment fraud rings. So just to give you a sense of what that is, it, it can manifest itself in a couple of ways. One is where a person or a group uses um, a victim's personal identifying information without authorization to collect unemployment benefits and then funnels that money into a bank account that's controlled by the perpetrator. The variation on that scheme is where a person or a group assists somebody um, in, in getting unemployment benefits and keeps the bulk of the benefits once they're paid out. Um, we have seen so many of these cases come our way. And so the way that we've been prioritizing them is to focus on those affecting vulnerable groups. So for example, people whose primary language is not English, um, people with mental or physical disabilities, people with substance abuse issues, people who are unhoused, um, that's how we've sort of been able to, um, to focus it down to and, and prioritize the cases that have been coming our way. Um, on a related note, we're also seeing these cases manifest um, with incarcerated individuals. So 
an incarcerated individual will take advantage of other incarcerated individuals, get their personal identifying information, and then have somebody uh, on the outside get the benefits, keep the benefits. Um, and our, our insurance and unemployment fraud division is currently uh, working on a case that's public involving uh, an incarcerated individual who uh, victimized many, many other incarcerated individuals in order to raise and post bail. Um, also on the criminal side, we're pursuing businesses that received PPP loans, um, but didn't pay their unemployment taxes. I think just as an aside, the AG's office really doesn't have a stake in PPP fraud because it's federal money. Um, we do send those cases to the U.S. Attorney's Office when they're referred to us. Um, but you know there are some 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 instances where we are able to, to take some action. Uh, on the civil side, we resolved an investigation into a car dealership that furloughed a majority of its employees, but then required them to continue working. So this car dealership had, I think it was 16 locations in Massachusetts, encouraged its employees when when car dealership showrooms were closed during the early days of the pandemic encouraged its employees to apply for unemployment benefits and then required them to do things like reach out to prospective customers, set up appointments, deliver cars. Um, uh, so a number of, of requirements, even though they were essentially being paid through unemployment benefits. Um, and we were able to, to allege that, that about 800 cars, the sales of 800 cars were attributed to the efforts of these furloughed employees. So, you know, just some examples, but um, I think I think the unemployment space is a really nice example of how we're sort of looking at it broadly um, across the office. That's super interesting. Thanks, Amy. What about Rua from the SEC? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things about the, the sort of the big uh, kind of you know, either criminal or quasi-criminal frauds that we looked at that I talked about in the sort of first category of microcap fraud is that, you know, some of the, one of the interesting things is that during the pandemic, people were really more vulnerable to some of this in part because they're at home all day. I mean, who picks up the phone anymore? But guess what? During the pandemic, they did, especially if you're elderly or, you know, you're disabled. Um, so, um, you, you know, you did have a lot of people that were really, you know, potentially super vulnerable to this kind of uh, conduct. I will say, I think, you know, the SEC brought a number of actions in the first like six months or so of the pandemic. And I don't think, you know, we certainly haven't seen those kinds of numbers since then. Um, but I think Gomes was representative of uh, the type of case that we brought where it was, you know, just this sort of big egregious fraud where people are just making stuff up. Um, you know, and we did have another set of cases that not surprisingly took a little bit longer for us to investigate, like the Parallax case that I talked about, where you know, you have a company that was already in the medical equipment business that had purportedly a test that could test for COVID and was purportedly in the business of getting masks en masse um, from a supplier in China. Um, and, you know, these are these are difficult cases for us. Um, and in this particular case, you had a CEO who's putting out press releases saying we're about to get this screening test approved by the FDA. Well, you know, that's tough. How do you 
you know, how, you know, the, the FDA was doing things a little bit differently than in some ways because there was a public health emergency. Um, and the thing that I thought was most interesting about that case is you had we ended up charging the CEO with intentional fraud, but then this chief technology officer with a, like a negligence based fraud, um, which you don't usually see in SEC cases. We tend to bring actions against individuals most often for intentional fraud um, and within the body of the same case, you don't usually see those kinds of different allegations. And, you know, but it, it, I think appropriately so in this case, you know, you have some people there that are really, you know, maybe were true believers in the company, but didn't kind of sort of check their judgment at the door, maybe because they saw that there's a lot of money to be made in this space. So in that case, um, you know, we, we brought different types of allegations against different defendants, which we thought you know, was reasonable and reflective of, um, you know, the different, um, both the standard of proof in a civil case and also just their their relevant mental state. Um, and, you know, we put a lot of thought into how's a jury going to look at this, you know, whether it's two or three years down the line, you know, what, you know, what was reasonable in the spring of 2020. Um, and, you know, like I talked about, we did bring some, you know, cases involving bigger public companies and and public disclosures. Um, I mean, it's, these are, you know, this is the range of cases that we typically bring. So it's not really unique to COVID. You know, we have cases involving, you know, particularly egregious and, you know, often borderline criminal fraud. You have cases involving real companies where people make you know, small or colossal misjudgments. And then you have companies that are making disclosures that are um, really of questionable value or outright misleading to investors and the general public. And so, you know, the kind of cases we bring in, in the era of COVID are really no different than the cases we have brought pre and post. Um, they just, um, I think, are that much more challenging because of the unique features of COVID. And, it, you know, only time will tell with SEC cases and probably with the Attorney General's office, you know, how will people look at these cases when they actually go to trial in 2024 or 2025? Um, and how will that cut for the various parties involved? Have we all just blocked out COVID? Or, you know, will people kind of remember um, what the environment was like back then? So um, that's just um, that's a, a rundown of the cases that we have brought in, you know, that but that are not that far outside of the realm of what we typically do in our cases where we're, um, you know, a civil agency that is often tasked with looking at the, you know, kind of more nuanced representations that are made to investors. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we'll also talk uh, touch on a little bit of what you were referencing with respect to how juries are going to look at things and intent sort of later on in discussing some of the, the challenges of these types of cases um, in the government context. Uh, David, what about the U.S. Attorney's Office? Yeah, I'll hit on a few um, of the different kind of buckets of cases that our office is, um, is charging uh, and continues to investigate, really. Um, the, the first... And again, most obvious is the initial wave of cases um, that came to our office uh, were the the PPP and, and EIDL um, fraud cases where individuals fairly early in the pandemic received hundreds of thousands or over a million, sometimes millions of, of dollars in, in PPP or idle funds um, through misrepresentations. Some of the most egregious cases are cases in which um, they applied for these these funds on behalf of entirely fake uh, entities. Uh, what we tend to see a lot of is um, what you might expect on these applications. Uh, PPP, for instance, the individual 
the applicant is required to declare how many employees and a certain um, amount of monthly payroll expenses. And then the resulting PPP loan is based on what the applicant reports. And so um, you might expect uh, that most of these cases would involve inflated reports of employees that are non-existent, sometimes um, you know, 10 to 100 times the amount of employees the business actually has. Um, and, and uh, far greater payroll expenses than what the business actually has. Um, on the idle side, uh, I think the, the applicant needed to report um, revenues or expenses, depending on what type of uh, entity the, the applicant was. And so you see the same thing, inflated numbers on those applications. Um, and then in a lot of the cases, uh, especially a couple of recent guilty pleas our offices had, um, the They've been real businesses um, and there have been fraud in the applications, but another distinguishing feature across um, actually most of these the cases our office has brought so far is the misuse of funds. Uh, frequently, these pandemic funds have gone to um, or, or are alleged to have gone to purchase real estate, cars, um, but also uh, some of the more telltale um, signs of, of and, and useful facts in terms of proving fraudulent intent beyond a reasonable doubt are um, when the individuals have have directed the funds into brokerage accounts and bought purchase investments or purchased cryptocurrency. Um, and so we have a number of those cases. And uh, just briefly highlight we there's only been one pandemic or pandemic fraud related trial in the district of Massachusetts so far. That was United States um, versus Elijah Bowie in February of last year. Uh, McKenzie actually um, prosecuted it alongside uh, a prosecutor from Maine Justice. And um, the jury convicted uh, that defendant of um, fraudulently applying for uh, over a million dollars, I believe, in PPP funds. Um, and in convicting that defendant, the jury rejected certain uh, defenses um, along the lines of, well, this was a complicated program. Uh, I might not have had these employees at the time that I implied, but I intended to have these employees next year. Um, I didn't understand the rules. Uh, I, I think everybody would agree that there are some parts of the, some quirks to these programs that are somewhat complicated. Um, but I think in terms of the, the types of cases that our office has brought so far, um, they really, in the first wave, they really are kind of the more egregious types where the, the representations on the applications are um, quite egregious or creative. Uh, and then just very, very briefly, um, on the pandemic unemployment assistance front, um, it's kind of similar to what Amy has highlighted. Uh, the, the state departments of unemployment assistance will continue to conduct their own investigations of individual instances of unemployment fraud. Well, we're, what our office is really focused on and where the federal investigators tend to step in is cases of uh, lots of stolen identities, um, perhaps identities stolen online or on the dark net, um, multi-state coordination. We've had, uh, we've charged cases in which the defendant is alleged to have filed numerous claims across 12 states. Um, and uh, and um, often involves selling stolen identities and laundering the proceeds from PUA or individuals applying for PUA on behalf of other individuals and receiving kickbacks. And then um, just briefly, a third bucket will be some of these lesser known programs I mentioned before. Uh, I mentioned the healthcare provider program. There's also um, the Fed operated its Main Street lending program. So it's just another source of funding that was available early on in the pandemic and that 
uh, many individuals um, saw as an opportunity to take advantage of free money. Thanks, David. Um, sort of a fun note on that um, trial you were mentioning, the buoy trial. It involved a real business, which I think was in our early pandemic cases, sort of the minority of cases. A lot of the the cases we prosecuted initially involved fake entities um, where it was easy to show these entities don't have tax filings, they don't have employees. Um, but that defendant did fill out multiple applications uh, for the same business around the same time period, claiming sort of different information um, on each application, which he used to sort of fuel a defense that he was confused. Um, but like David said, the jury rejected that argument. So it, it was interesting in that I think it was the it's the only pandemic um, trial we've had in federal court in Massachusetts. Um, there have been trials in California and other locations, but not many of these cases have gone to trial to date. Um, so it is it, it's an interesting data point um, that the jury agreed, even though the business was was real and they they did have employees, they just weren't in the United States. Um, I wanted to sort of switch gears to talk about, I, I think a lot of our folks that are um, attendees here probably have clients that they're advising, maybe clients that, you know, are freaking out that they put that they have 10 employees and they miscounted and it's actually nine because someone went on, you know, extended medical leave or something uh, minor like that. I, I thought it might be interesting to sort of talk about what might attract the government's attention to um, a PPP loan applicant, David, what sort of um, red flags do you look for um, when you're assessing a case? So I think um, some of them I mentioned already, if, if uh, in taking a look at where the funds went, it, um, if we're seeing funds going to purchase cryptocurrency or um, expenses that are clearly of a personal nature, that's, that's a clear red flag. Um, and, uh, you know, these cases have come to us in any number of ways, including both by kind of sweeping national databases and in keeping track of, um, complaints that come into various, you know, national fraud, um, national center for disaster fraud, for instance. Uh, but complaints or, or tips often come from more of the local level as well. Um not just banks uh, in the communities, but uh, one of the things that um, was was somewhat interesting and somewhat helpful is that uh, um, PPP borrowers were often uh, published in local newspapers. And so that was, um, you know, another way that some of these cases get brought to the attention of investigators if, if people in the community um, see that uh, their neighbor who they, whose business they're familiar with is receiving um, you know, over a million dollars in CARES Act funding um, and something just, you know, seems off about that. That's that's just another way that um, these cases have, have tended to come uh, to investigators. And sort of kicking the question to the broader panel, um, Amy, how does the AG's office develop their cases? Like where, how does that originate? Well, I think primarily through either hotline calls, uh, or referrals from state agencies or municipalities. Um, we have a number of different hotlines. Each division has one, but they're all sort of funneled through the main switchboard. Um, but we get constituent complaints all the time, as I mentioned earlier. Um, 
We also, some divisions receive QTAM complaints. Um, most of them go to our Medicaid fraud division. Um, my division receives some. Uh, we also have an insurance and financial services division that uh, enforces the False Claims Act and they receive some as well. Um, but the bulk of the key TAMs go to our Medicaid fraud division. Um, and then, you know, we we read the news. <laughs> um, we read the newspaper. We read all the newspapers in Massachusetts. Um, and I, I think, at least for my division, the bulk of our work comes um, through that sort of just awareness of, of what's going on in the state. What about the SEC, Rua? I mean, a lot of the same ways that, you know, general public, you know, news articles, um, that kind of thing. I mean, we do monitor the markets, right? So a lot of times, like in the in the Gomes case, for example, we saw that the price of the security, which is often they're sold for pennies, went from like 15 cents and like 500,000 people trading it or 500,000 shares traded a day to like all of a sudden it's trading for almost a dollar and there's 3 million shares trading a day. So, you know, you can you can kind of police stuff in in real time and, you know, they dig into what's going on behind the scenes. Um, So we also have a, a you know, a pretty substantial whistleblower program in the wake of Dodd-Frank. Um, so, you know, you have people coming in who will potentially get a cut of the financial remedies that we get if they are, um, you know, shown to have provided timely and helpful information that's truthful. Um, and uh, so, I mean, those are a couple of the ways um, that I think are, you know, more unique to the SEC. But other than that, it, you know, can be everything um, from, you know, just kind of, uh you know, somebody wandering into your office and being like, I saw this thing, it seems weird, you know, but um, I would say the, the the tools that we have to kind of monitor um, securities transactions are pretty, pretty important um, in identifying, especially some of the more egregious conduct. And David, what about for the U.S. Attorney's Office? How do those cases sort of come in the door? Um, well, I, I think I um, hit on some of the sources, but um, one thing that uh, is is sort of, I guess, interesting is that the the way these cases get worked up is not terribly different than many other, you know, loan fraud cases that our office would bring. It just involves, um, you know, multiple rounds of subpoenas and process to 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 look at all the financials and figure out what's happening and with, with um, you know, the the applicant. Um, what's what the applications are looking like, what are the communications with the banks? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that um, these cases are coming in in a variety of ways, but um, we, we tend to take the same sort of, um, you know, white collar paper heavy approach to, to these investigations. And so um, we, we may be getting a steady stream of, of complaints or tips, um, but uh, obviously investigating these cases takes time. Um, and so that's why you're not, you know, seeing kind of a, a rush to, to indict or, or charge many of these cases. And, and, um, that might be just one of the reasons why the statute of limitations has been extended. Um, we now have a 10 year statute of limitations for COVID related, um, fraud. And so these cases aren't, aren't going, going anywhere soon. Um, switching gears, we sort of touched on this a little bit, but I'm hoping each of you can just comment briefly on what the biggest challenges are for your agency in bringing pandemic-related cases. I think it's no secret that on the criminal side, it's intense. Um, so, but let's start first with with Rua. I 
mean, I think the same for us. I mean, I think generally speaking, SEC cases rise and fall on two factors one or two elements. One of them is intent and the other is materiality. I mean, in terms of COVID cases, you know, at least in the cases that I've been involved in, you know, it, pretty clearly if you're like hawking medical tests in 2020, I don't think there's going to be a big materiality issue. Um, but, you know, proving intent is particularly thorny and we haven't really gotten to the end of, um, you know, the story in terms of how, you know, fact finders are going to see these cases if and when they go to trial. Um, so I would say that's the biggest, that's the biggest factor. And also we are trying, uh, you know, as always to bring our cases more quickly and efficiently. And um, it, you know, these cases can be thorny to dig into um, particularly when you have stuff like, you know, FDA approvals and the status and some sensitive, you know, proprietary information. So um, trying to do these cases, you know, quickly and with uh, high impact is, is always a challenge. Uh, David, what about for the U.S. Attorney's Office? Yeah, just to echo Rua, intent's always going to be the um, kind of the, the main hurdle. Um, I think what you can expect to see from the cases that our office is bringing, though, is um, cases in which the allegations involve uh, particularly creative representations aimed to get a higher loan amount or to get a loan amount in the first place, not you know, as I, I think Mackenzie hinted earlier on, not, um, you know, the difference between reporting eight or 10 employees on an application. And so, um, so that helps. Uh, another um, uh, difficulty, I, I suppose, is, is um, that we face is we're obviously trying to recover as, as much um, of the funds as, as we can. And uh, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Um, but we can't always, uh, uh, kind of recover, recover even even half the funds, depending on um, where we are in the, in the investigation, how quickly the funds were spent, and uh, you know, in many cases, it's it's um, the irony is that it's sometimes better for us if if uh, a lot of the funds have been spent because it's good evidence of intent because it's misuse of funds. Um, and then, I guess another difficulty uh, that I think we're we're seeing is that. Um, it's not always the case where one individual is is the response is was responsible for the application and received the funds, and you know sometimes the investigation involves a network of people, including recruiters and kickback payments, and there aren't always um, great communications showing. Um, you know what the agreements were. You only see the payment of commissions or kickbacks, um, and the receipt of of. Uh, clearly fraudulently obtained funds. And so um, I think disentangling kind of the various actors who are all out to take advantage of these programs um, can also be a challenge in our criminal investigations. Hmm. Um, Amy, what about the AG's office? So I everything that Rua and David said, I have also experienced. Um, just to put sort of the AG's flavor on it in terms of recovering money, um, we've we've run into many situations where we're pursuing companies that were sort of new to pandemic-related spaces, maybe aren't well capitalized, maybe don't have the funds anymore. Um, we entered into a settlement agreement with one um, who just didn't pay. Um, and so that's been a challenge that we faced. Um, the other challenge that was mentioned as I was sort of discussing um, topics with others in the office to prepare for today is in terms of the unemployment fraud rings from a criminal perspective, 
One particular challenge they have faced is that they're very reliant on witness statements, which is always challenging. Um, so, you know, in addition to, to other, other things that have been said, that's, that's what we're experiencing. I think piggybacking a little bit off of David highlighting the U.S. Attorney's Office challenges, the, the many folks are probably familiar with the way the form looks for a PPP loan, and it has these sort of broad categories. And then there are these detailed regulations that sort of expand upon what's in the form. And so for us, one of the challenges is, do we really want a jury to be in the mindset of like, well, who reads these extended regulations? You know, we need to go off of what the form says and what the words on the form say, as opposed to what these dense regulations require. And so that's always a consideration for us too, is in putting these cases eventually before juries, we want the jury to sort of understand the fraud and not feel like someone um, just made a mistake or um, there was an accident in, in filling it out. And so that's, that's a consideration for us as well. Um, because I want to make sure we leave some time for questions, I'm hoping we could touch briefly sort of on what each of you expect with regard to um, future actions. Um, do you expect sort of the, the theories and types of actions to evolve over time, or are you expecting um, more of the same in terms of the, the types of prosecutions? Um, I think we can start with David on this one. Yeah, I think um, in terms of the loan fraud, it's it's likely going to be um, much of the same flavor, but with, with some um, different issues. The with the various programs, um, funding was extended or additional funding became available. With the PPP um, funds, those were were forgivable. And so, not only do you have do you have a lot of individuals who got a first round PPP application, then they applied for a second round application, and they applied for a forgiveness application. And so, you have several rounds in which they're making either consistent or inconsistent representations, um, either doubling down on a um, on an original fraudulent statement or, um, you know, make, making evolving representations. Um, you also saw this on the, the idle side where the Small Business Administration kept raising the cap. Um, I think at first the maximum amount available was $150,000 and it was $500,000 and then it was a million dollars. And so, um, I, I think some of the cases will involve uh, individuals who, um, over the course of the pandemic, as these programs kind of played out, um, uh, took various efforts to try to maximize how much money they were getting. Um, I've been focusing on the, the criminal side of things, but I think one thing um, to perhaps uh, keep an eye on is just a, a potential de development would be on the civil side. Um, there, there's been some um, reporting on um, TTM actions and the potential for um, for those to um, be be brought in this space. Um, there's also, you know, potential civil exposure for uh, finance companies. Um, there are any number of uh, company fintech companies or other finance companies who really shifted gears early on in the pandemic and made their entire business about um, becoming PP, qualified PPP lenders or um, really processing loan applications. And not all of them were the most scrupulous of actors. And so I think that's a potential trend. Um, and then also, uh, I would note, you know, potential healthcare billing fraud cases, um, since there were so many significant changes to the delivery of care during the pandem pandemic. 
um, that's uh, another area of um, potential developments. Uh, what about on the SEC side, Rua? Yeah, so I think, I mean, you know, our cases, are, you know, I can't talk about non-public investigations that may span a longer amount of time if they're more complex. I mean, I'm sure you haven't seen the end of cases that we're bringing. Um, I, I actually think that things will come around a little bit and we may um, we may be presented by a different challenge with what's happened with COVID, which is um, this this scope of this is so broad, right? Like I was the subject of an unemployment fraud claim where someone applied for unemployment under my name, right? And so you can see a scenario where in our cases, it's another category of baggage that our witnesses may have, right? Like, you know, when you're going through the punch list with your like investor witnesses or your cooperators on the criminal side, you know, it's yet another thing that you're going to be like, oh, you did this too? Oh God, now how do we deal with that? I mean, it is... I would think on the defense side, you know, they're going to be looking for, oh, you know, this investor victim that you have, like, right, he's running this company and he got a million dollars in PPP money. Um, so it is something that we're going to have to be thinking about, not just sort of what cases are we bringing, but like, how is this going to come back to impact our cases in ways that you wouldn't necessarily anticipate? Um, so that's something I think we need to be, you know, thinking about and also, um, you know, just going forward, how you know, how is this going to play out in litigation? And and I think it's yet to be seen post-pandemic, you know, which way the sympathies will cut um, when you're trying a case. You know, are you sympathetic to the defendant as with your defendant who's, you know, maybe just some person who's a babe in the woods and is, you know, saying that they didn't really understand? Um, or, you know, are people sort of outraged that, you know, their tax dollars are being exploited? So I think it is, but it is a category of things where we're going to have to be keeping an eye out on, um, you know, whether this is uh, this is conduct that is um, going to show up in our cases because they involve fraud. And like every fraudster is involved somehow in exploiting the COVID pandemic. So um, it is something we're going to have to be cautious about going forward, I think, in litigating. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think in terms of the case we tried federally, it came up in four gear whether um, individuals had applied for PPP loans or had relatives or personally worked at a bank processing those kinds of loans. And I think both sides sort of viewed the people that answered affirmatively to those questions as sort of risky for either side because you didn't really know like, okay, did this person work really hard to like seek legal advice and talk to accountants and try to do everything correctly? Or was the person just like, yeah, I think this is my payroll, you know? So I think the way that played out was both sides sort of stayed away from those types of jurors just because it was a question mark. So that's a really interesting point. Um, Amy, if what it, about- um, Actually, Mackenzie, if I could real quick, yeah. um, just be back on a point real made too, in terms of all fraudsters kind of having a, uh, wanting a piece of this. Um, Another interesting thing that we're seeing in our office is that many of the cases that are now coming to us in terms of PPP or idle uh, uh, fraud is that these are um, these are loan applications that are only coming to our attention because these individuals are being investigated for some other conduct already. And so this is another kind of category of cases that, um, you know, we're we just discovered that there's also a pandemic fraud angle to these already existing um, investigations. Right. Even for, I forget who was mentioning incarcerated, I think it was Amy mentioned incarcerated individuals and the unemployment fraud. That's something we see 
all the time with people that are already federal defendants um, or might already be a target of a federal investigation. And then we'll, we'll see the applications, which provides sort of another angle of prosecution. Um, but what can we expect from the AG's office uh, looking sort of into our crystal ball, Amy? My sense is that we sort of have the universe of cases that we're working on where our, our complaints have dropped off. I haven't gotten a new COVID case in a long time, um, but we have a lot that we're doing. So I think the work will continue. Um, my sense is that it'll, it'll remain sort of similar to what we've been doing um, over the past couple of years. Um, but, you know, who knows? Maybe there will be a whole new area that I'm not anticipating. Um, but certainly we we have our fair share of work to do based on what's already been referred to us. Um, just briefly before we get to questions, David mentioned on the federal side, the statute of limitations has been extended to 10 years for PPP and idle applications. But on the state side and with respect to the SEC type of actions, what generally is the statute of limitations for those types of claims? I mean, for the SEC, most of our cases are five years, and that really hasn't changed in any meaningful way. And we are hustling to try to bring cases ever more quickly. So um, clock's, clock's ticking. <laughs> our statute of limitations hasn't changed either. I mean, we're doing work in so many different areas of the office that I don't actually know the statute of limitations for every matter. But my division has done, I would say, the bulk of our COVID fraud cases and our statute of limitations is six years. So, um, so I think we have we have plenty of time to to handle what we have on our plate right now. Thanks, everyone. Um, I want to kick it over to questions. I see we already have one in the chat, but if if you're an attendee and you have other questions, feel free to to put them in there. Um, so our first question relates to counseling borrowers on PPP role, rules. Um, and um, there are CIDs being issued to borrowers who might have applied the rules but didn't have fraudulent intent. How is the government looking at the issue of intent and good faith mistakes? Um, and how can borrowers best demonstrate that they acted in good faith when being investigated? I'll kick this one to David with the caveat that obviously every case is, is different and we can't, you know, give give legal advice, but I think, I think, um, I have some feelings on this. So what do you think, Davis? Um, yeah, I, I, I think in terms of what you can expect, um, our focus to be, it's our, our focus is, will likely not be on the borderline cases. Um, uh, but another thing to be, I guess, um, be mindful of is the fact that, again, with the PPP loans, there are rounds of, of submissions. And so um, I don't think anybody wants to be doubling down on good faith mistakes um, if they were in fact good faith mistakes on on future applications. Um, I, th I think that would be probably uh, one of the bigger mistakes that could be made um, if there was in fact a mistake, just a, a uh, innocent mistake on, on the in initial application. Yeah, and I'd also say just for me personally, if someone's working um, with an attorney or an accountant, that doesn't obviously mean that there's necessarily good faith. Obviously, people can be deceived, but it would sort of slow things down a little bit and um, make me, as a prosecutor, sort of look at those communications and um, th 
think whether we can prove intent beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 people. Um, there's another question, um, how much coordination and deconfliction takes place between the SEC, the AG's office, and the U.S. Attorney's office. Amy, do you want to take this one? Sure. Um, from my perspective, very little. Um, I think that there is potentially more um, on the criminal side. Um, I know on the in the PUA space, um, I don't recall ever having worked with the SEC. Um, we do work with the U.S. Attorney's Office on key TAM matters that name both the state and the federal government. Um, but other than that, we typically don't. Yeah, I, I was going to say we don't. I would say the most typical would be coordination with the criminal authorities in some way, shape or form. And it can work in either direction. Um, and we, we both have our own mandates and we both have our own tools that we bring. Um, I mean, I think the Gomes case that we brought in June of 2020 is probably a pretty good and typical example in the sense that we brought a very broad case. Right. We sued five people. We sued six offshore entities. We sued, um, we didn't sue, but we brought trading suspensions against four different companies. And then the U.S. Attorney's Office brought a like a standalone case against the lead defendant criminally um, and it indicted him. So I think that's, you know, it's a good example. I think we... Um, we have the ability to freeze funds, and that tends to be front and center in in um, our consideration to um, can we lock down money for investors? Um, and um, so we do do a fair amount of, um, you know, referring cases or getting cases referred to us with federal. Uh, and for those who don't know, we're the Boston regional office. So we do cover all of New England, basically. So we are also um, we you know, we work with a variety of state and federal um, criminal authorities uh, all across the region. Um, and, you know, with, as you know, with fraud, you can never really pin it down to one jurisdiction. So we have cases that are uh, all over the country and um, sometimes international as well. There is another question here. Um, David mentioned potential civil exposure for finance companies and fintechs who participate in lending. How do you see that playing out in terms of some of the lenders who didn't have BSA programs, the Bank Secrecy Act, before PPP and ended up issuing large amounts of loans with potentially limited compliance procedures in place? Um, David, do you have thoughts on that? I, I can also comment on it if you don't. Um, I, I don't. I haven't really um, thought about it too much other than uh, I, I think that... Um, a lot of these these companies were um, rather ambitious, and, and so um, they were moving quickly and operating in a space that was um, very brand new. And, and over the course of just a month or two, completely shifting their business models. And so, I, I don't think it would be surprising if um, the compliance programs uh, are deficient. But um, you know, I, I won't comment on any sort of you know specific investigations and. and um, or don't have any specific uh, uh, com company or kind of company in mind. Um, Mackenzie, what, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that's right. I think in order to get the money out the door, there was some sort of, um, obviously their compliance with the BSA was necessary, but in order to 
get money out the door quickly, lenders were sort of permitted to rely on the representations that borrowers were making, which is why there's so many actions now and, and why, frankly, the, the fraud was so rampant with this type of program. Um, because if you're a fraudster, like self-certifying something doesn't really seem like that big of a deal and it allows money to go out the door quickly. So um, lender due diligence requirements, I think, you know, they're sort of decreased in that context. Um, the FBA, I think, limited them um, in, in sort of assessing what is required to obtain a loan. Um, but, you know, obviously there are still egregious cases or cases where um, fraud is blatantly being ignored. And I think those sort of things would be in a different category um, is my, my guess. Um, someone asked, I think this is probably best suited for Amy. Are you pursuing treble damages when available in civil cases? I know you talked about 93A before, Amy. Um, we are, I mean, they're mandatory if we win a trial. Um, so, but yes, absolutely. Um, if no one else has any other questions, we are two minutes ahead of schedule. If there is a last minute question, we're happy to take it, but thank you everyone, um, for joining. We hope this was helpful. Um, we know this is sort of a, uh, evolving area and I hope everyone enjoyed the program and found it helpful. So thanks for participating. And thank you to Mackenzie for moderating and to our speakers. So if there are no more questions, we'll wrap up today's program. Thanks everyone. All right, thank you, bye.